Sermon. We'll be reading in verses 11, uh, 23 and 24 of Acts chapter 11. By the way, thank you, Josh, for having a second guitar ready. That's awesome. I kind of feel like we need to give him a, a light E-string budget because I, I just feel like he doesn't get paid. He does a ton of work. I feel like, well, at least maybe we should reimburse the number of E-strings he breaks. Uh, uh, Acts eleven twenty three through 24. And he came and saw the grace of God, Barnabas. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So we're going to continue looking at this exhortation that Barnabas brings to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And we want to just point out this morning that that exhortation would not be necessary if all finished the race that they began. Um, there, there, there is a reality that we're seeing more and more of, and I'll address this a little bit more in a moment, that as Jesus predicted in Matthew twenty four twelve, the love of many will grow cold. And so the exhortation to remain is only meaningful if in one way or another the possibility of not remaining exists. And so we need to get into that because that's a very important and sobering idea and it couldn't be more consequential and important to us. And we're going to also assume that as we find ourselves in this verse this morning, that the Lord is speaking to us and saying to us, I see my grace at work in you. Remain faithful with steadfast purpose. So I thought all week about how do you explain this phrase? Remain faithful with steadfast purpose. And the Greek is actually really interesting in this one. And I could do a bunch there. But it really, I, I think the most elegant, quick, efficient way of giving you a clear understanding of this verse would just be to give you a, 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 this verse in its opposite effect. So I'm just going to show you kind of like, what's the opposite of this verse? What's the mirror image of this verse? And I guess you could say that as opposed to remaining faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, you might say, become unfaithful to the Lord through lack of focus. So the mirror image of Barnabas's exhortation to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose is to become unfaithful to the Lord. That part's easy. And, and that's, so, so the, the first part of this sentence is the, is the object, right? It's the goal. Remain faithful. Remain faithful to the Lord. The second part of this sentence is the means by which this occurs, with steadfast purpose. So when we're doing a mirror image of this verse, we'd say it's, it, the object changes, now we are becoming unfaithful. And what is the means of our unfaithfulness? Lack of focus. Lack of steadfast intention. And this tells us what Barnabas is really focusing on when it comes to the means of remaining in the Lord. And that means is he's focusing on focus. He's, he's telling these folks to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast, heart-filled intention, purpose. That's the key to remaining faithful. A steadfast heart commitment to remaining faithful. 
So uh, as some of you know, my wife and Julie and, and I watch the kiddos during community group on Wednesday nights, and we do crafts uh, that, that tie in with the theme of whatever the lesson is for that week. And the lesson for this Wednesday was fully rely on God, uh, frog, right? And so we had frog, we had, we had frog coloring book things, and we had a frog maze, and our kids are really good at mazes, which was kind of cool to see. Um, uh, you know, and, then, and then we had this craft where we made a frog. And the idea with making the frog is, is that you cut a circle, green circle, and then you, you trace their hands out, and you cut out their hands. We do too many crafts that cut out the hands, because this is hard to do. There's a, lot of things, there's a lot of scissor work going on there. Anyway, so this craft was a little slow. It was a little complicated. And so the kids were super, kids had all been playing outside all day. And you could tell, because they were so well-behaved. This is, this is the parenting hack 101. Your kid is just a better human being when he plays outside a lot. So um, anyway, so they're all super, like, compliant. Like, everything's going really smoothly. And they're also more into watching TV than normal that night. And so we had Adventures in Odyssey going on on the TV. And then we would call, like, like I would call a kiddo over, and I would do the craft with that kiddo. And then Julie would, you know. And so, uh, so I get this little girl who is probably top ten in crafts. Like, she's probably one of the better craft girls. And she knows it. And so she's usually not, like, super into me, anybody helping her. And that's fine. <clears throat> And she's, she usually, yeah, she, she produces some of the better crafts that occur on Wednesday nights. And, uh, and so the thing is, is that she was super into Adventures in Odyssey as well. So she's sitting, she's standing next to me, and we're cutting stuff out, and we're, we're gluing. But she is really watching TV most of the time as she's making her frog. She gets done, and I'm very aware of what's going wrong here, but I don't want to say anything. And she gets done, and she looks down. And she's like, that doesn't look like a frog. <laughs> and and I, thought, I thought, well, you're not wrong. It, it, to the extent that it does look like a frog, it looks like a frog that someone made while they were watching TV. You know? uh, and so you know, the nice thing about Elmer's glue is you can rearrange things. You, know, you get a few seconds of uh, grace period. You know, so we were able to figure it out. But uh, that moment was extremely insightful as I was thinking about this verse. Because what Barnabas is saying here is, is that your effort to remain with Christ, your effort to become more like Christ, you won't look more like Christ if you're not focused, if you're not paying attention. You'll look something. It just won't be, it just won't be more like Christ. And, you know, to a certain extent, there's a grace period where we can rearrange things. But a lifelong habit of not seeking, not being intentional, not being focused on Christ, yeah, the the, the results are not going to be great. You're not going to look like what you want to look like. So the means of this text of remaining faithful is focus. And and that fits really well with when we start grabbing all the data in the Bible about people falling away. Um, When you kind of just grab all of it and process it, which I've done, and, you know, you make spreadsheets and so on with Bible verses, which I've done. Uh, you get these, the basic language of falling away is, is very passive. It's very rarely high-handed rejection. If you were to summarize all of the Bible's descriptions of people who fall away, it would simply be this. Falling away looks a lot like falling asleep. 
It's all about the lack of focus. And you see words like forgetful often in this. Or like Jesus says, the love growing cold or burdened down and so forth. And so falling away looks a lot like falling asleep. It looks a lot like a consistent lack of intention and focus. T.S. Eliot, uh, in one of his famous poems, The Hollow Man, I think is what the poem, he ends the poem by saying probably his most famous line, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. And that's the way that we have seen many depart from the faith. Bang is the, is the announcement. The bang is the, 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 the reservoir of sin that we didn't know about. But the whimper was well before, and it really was just consistent with everything I'm telling you about the biblical data. It was a, it was a, it was a lack of intention, a lack of focus. Luke 8, 5 through 7, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Luke uh, just 9, 8, 9 through 15. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path who have, are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are on those, are those who, when they heard the word, received it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of testing fall away. And as for those, uh, for, for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, for their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So all of the four kinds of soil in the parable, three of them show life. This is a very important principle to digest. Three of them show some life. Only one of them is, in Jesus' designation, really alive. Really his. And what is the difference between these kinds of soil? Well, the good soil hears the word And Jesus says, holds it fast. What's what's happening in the good soil that's not happening elsewhere is a kind of intention and diligence and focus and dedication. And so they say that, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I guess maybe there's some good intention pavers on the road to hell, but And I really think if you examine all the biblical data, most of the time you'd see that the road to hell is paved with low intention. The road to hell is paved with distractions. The road to hell is paved with the opposite of steadfast purpose. 
Now, all of this that I've said so far is absolutely 1,000% biblically faithful, but you might be asking yourself, well, how does this connect to what we believe about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and this idea that when Jesus saves someone, they are indeed saved? Well, there's nobody that I would turn to more quickly and lean on more heavily, no human teacher about this doctrine than Spurgeon. Spurgeon absolutely loved the doctrine that all who are saved will remain saved into the end. There isn't a doctrine he loved more. He says that himself, and if you just read him, if you never said it, and you just read Spurgeon, you would realize this guy talks about this a lot. This was a delight to him. But in his day, he was seen as a pretty terrible Calvinist. Uh, There were a lot of controversies that he endured because he was seen as a pretty terrible Calvinist. And why was he seen as a pretty terrible Calvinist? Because he refused to allow issues related to salvation or sanctification dissolve into mere fatalism. And the Calvinist climate of the time simply said, we don't need to go and preach the gospel to people, because if God wants them to be saved, they'll be saved. And it also said, we don't need to warn Christians about falling away, because if they are Christians, they won't. And that's fatalism, and that's actually not how the Bible addresses either issue. And so Spurgeon is a trusted source on this subject, but he's trusted not only because he believes and delights in the doctrine, but because he carefully and pastorally and routinely warns his people about this idea that of the seeds in the parable of the sower, or of the soil in the parable of the soil, sower, three of the four look like they were alive. So let's talk about this a little bit further. He preached this doctrine on March 7th. It's kind of cool. He preached a sermon on this doctrine, March 7th, 1862. And the title of that message that he preached is Perseverance Without Presumption. And I feel like that phrase has a lot packed into it perseverance without presumption. The word presume just means to take something for granted, to take liberties. The Latin root for this word is the same as the word for consume. It just means to use or to take. And so the faithful preaching of this subject is what we see with Barnabas. He sees people whom he identifies with everything he knows how to measure as true believers, and yet he warns them, he says, you must remain faithful to the Lord through the means, through the means of steadfast purpose. He believes in perseverance, but he guards against presumption, and that's the way to talk about this issue. Perseverance without presumption means I do believe that all who are saved will continue in Christ because he is both the author and the finisher of their faith. But I also believe that there are some who believe themselves to be in Christ who are not. And to those, we would be, we would be, we would be foolish and unloving to not say, watch out for the sin of presumption. One of the ways I think I could talk about this is to say that, in some sense, the Bible tells a story of two kinds of people, right? 
And this is the way we're used to thinking about it. And this isn't a wrong way of thinking about it. But the Bible tells the story of two kinds of people, those that are saved and those who are not, right? Okay, that's great. But let's also realize the Bible sometimes talks about three kinds of people. And it isn't contradicting anything about the two kinds of people. And the three kinds of people that the Bible would talk about are those who are obviously not his and those who are and those who appear to be but are not. So the the Bible talks about it two different ways. It talks about two kinds of people, those who are saved and those who are not saved. But then throughout just about every story, you will always have a pretender in the midst. You'll always have someone caught up in presumption. And this is the idea that I think would be worth talking about. I think Barnabas is guarding against when he exhorts them the way he does. Is We need to remember that presumption can actually look a lot like faith. Presumption can actually look a lot like faith. Donald Barnhouse once said, another substitute for faith that is frequently encountered is presumption. And I want to help you see how this, how this plays out. Because on the front end, someone who is presuming upon God and someone who is trusting God, sometimes that looks an awful lot alike. The... the at that stage in maturity, they look like the same thing. So uh, let's talk about presumption a little bit. So let's, let's establish some rules that we've all kind of agreed to as, as we've been here week after week after week. We've kind of gotten a common language and vocabulary about the nature of sin and the nature of the human heart. And we would just say this. The human heart is so desperately wicked that it cannot look at any of God's gifts without scheming a way to steal them and use them to further its own sinful purposes. So God makes all of these amazing gifts in the world. He, makes, he, he gives us bodies. He, makes, he creates uh, wealth. Uh, he creates comfort. He creates marriage. He, you know, all of these wonderful things. God makes them all. And the response, because of the nature of sin in every heart, is to look at those gifts and identify a way to separate the creator from the creation, take the gift and use it for our own sinful purposes, right? That's, we, we kind of all agree to that. And we also kind of all agree that the greater the gift, the more likely this is to occur. So the, all the best gifts are the ones that have the, are, are stolen more than the, it's sort of like, you know, uh, like all the best cars are stolen or something, you know, like we all know like what a good gift is. So some, some of the best gifts that God has created are some of the ones that are creating the most damage. Why? Because they're potent, they're powerful, they're full of goodness, they're full of power and we steal them and we use them the way we want to use them and we use them for our own purposes and here's an introduction of a new thought related to presumption what is the greatest gift god has given us the gospel the greatest gift that god has given us is the gospel and some will just reject it openly but others will appear to accept it but in reality merely take it and use it for their own sinful means. They will use it as a bomb, as an ointment, for their own guilt. They will use it as a means of getting into a community that will actually love them and walk with them. There's a way to use any of God's gifts. And the human heart is, that, is really that scheming. I learned a new phrase last night from George Washington. The human heart is a rascalian heart. 
a rascal. And it will take any gift God gives. If it is not redeemed, if the human heart is not made new, it will take any gift that God gives and it will figure out a way to use it for its own purposes. And yes, that even includes the gospel. And there's warning after warning after warning in the scriptures about this idea. If you looked at the gospel with an unregenerate heart, for instance, and you got this idea, like, you mean to tell me that Jesus absolutely, totally forgives me for everything I've ever done, ever will do, and that I can't earn my way into heaven, and that, like, it's only his righteousness, and his righteousness is applied to me. That person has the right understanding of the gospel. And then if they don't have a regenerate heart, they'll say, great, that means I can sin as much as I want to. See the presumption? On the front end, two people could say the very same things about the gospel, but absent from a regenerate heart, one will use the gospel in a presumptive way. At the front end, they look like they, they, they both agree, the believer and this, this non-believer in disguise. But over time, this presumption shows itself. The Puritans were very concerned about this particular issue. They were very concerned about the nature of true salvation. And this is why Spurgeon, as sort of a wannabe, too late for the party Puritan, loved this doctrine, I think. If you read the Puritans, John Flavel, Puritan, said, this is so, this is so important. Many presume that, they ha- that, that, that the grace, many presume they have grace in them, which God knoweth they have not. Here is a dangerous conspiracy between a cunning devil and an ignorant, proud heart. To ruin the soul forever, they stamp their common grace for special. They put the old creature by a general profession into the new creature's habits and lay a confident claim to all the privileges of the children of God. They stamp their common grace special. They stamp good behavior as evidence of regeneration. Puritan Thomas Cole writes, there is something of the general nature of hope in presumption. This is that idea again that presumptuousness looks a lot like faith and hope. Cole says, there is something of the general nature of hope in presumption. Therefore, we must be the more accurate and strict in distinguishing between the grace of hope and the sin of presumption, which resembles the grace of hope. That's right, we do. We need to be, we need to be careful. We need to give a strict and accurate distinguishing between the grace of hope and the sin of presumption. And what I want to do just this morning is to say that, well, what's the means of that? Like, how... This is so potentially confusing. Like, how do we get, how do we steer out of this? And I want to suggest to you that that the means is in our text. Faithful friendships with people who are good, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith are a primary means to keep us from falling into the sins of presumption. The evidence of this is is everywhere in Scripture. When David was caught in a presumptuous sin, he needed a friend like Nathan to bravely and creatively show him the truth. 
and all throughout the New Testament. You know, I hit this a, a couple weeks ago. When you read your New Testament and you read the apostles, they are many things. One of the things you should really pay attention to, it's, it's so encouraging, is to think of these people as friends. Because honestly, if you just reduced it to that level and you just said Paul was a good friend to the Corinthian church, and Paul was a good friend to the Galatian church, and Paul was a good friend to the Roman church, if you just evaluated his interactions just as in seeking a definition of friendship, you would be, you would be wonderfully encouraged. Of course, Paul's more than that. But what you see time and time again is that this sort of guarding against presumption comes through the people that God has placed in our lives. And that's what we see in our text, right? Many had believed. The Lord had turned many to him, it says in verse 22 in Acts 11. And then in Acts eleven twenty-three, it says, He, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So what's the antidote for presumption? Well, the one that we see in this text is a friend who is good, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith who reminds them, who warns them, who potentially even wounds them in order to help them to remain steadfast and true to the Lord. I'm not saying that friendship, Christian friendship, is the only antidote to presumption. I am saying as you go throughout the pages of Scripture, you will see this is a primary means to keep us from growing presumptuous and to help us to remain steadfast. To remain steadfast. Your faith will indeed, your faith will indeed be largely informed by the company you keep. All of us need friends who are good full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith to encourage us and to keep us from falling in to patterns of presumption. If you have your Bibles, uh, or it'll be, I think it'll be on the screen, not 100% on that, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Oh, it's there. I want you to pay attention to this verse in the in the in the question, the category of friendship. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the impetus to this exhortation? What's, what's the therefore connected to? Therefore, since we are what? 
surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Here's a remarkable truth. Even faithful friends who are dead are better than faithless friends who are alive. That's why it's really good to know your Bible. And that's why it's really good to just read through Hebrews 11 every once in a while. But the effect that you see that's happening here is, I am, because of what happened in 11, when I was told about all these studly men and women you know, living this life of faith, men of whom the world was not worthy, because I have just been surrounded by these friends, by this great cloud of witnesses, I am now ready to be encouraged to lay aside my sin and to look to Jesus and the key word, run with endurance the race that is set before me. You see the connection. It's a sort of like a, the antidote to presumption is all right here. The connection between I'm surrounded by a cloud of people who are good, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith. And now I have been given what I need to run the race of endurance and look to Jesus and let go of my sins. So last week we focused on being encouraging. This week we focus on seeking encouragement. What does it mean? Like this, this, this threshold that Barnabas lays out, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. It's like, like it's, do you know, it's really hard to focus. Is it, I mean, I know I have some ADD, but like it really is for everybody, right? It's not just me. It's really hard to focus. And you know what else? It's super hard to focus on things you can't see. This, this, this idea that my faith remaining and continuing and persevering to the extent that God is working through me, will manifest itself on focus is a little scary for someone like me. Like, that seems to not be my strength, right? So, so, so this idea is like, you're telling me that the only way I stay in this race and finish it is, by have, is, is with steadfast focus. It's like, that's a problem for me. I think it's probably a problem for all of us. What is the primary means of grace that God uses to keep us focused on him. It's, it's Christian friendship. It's local church membership. It's the means of grace that is the Sunday morning worship service. There is something that God does through in-person fellowship that cannot be replicated very easily anyway. And so one of the things that I would like to encourage you to see, here's, here's an interesting challenge what if you are underestimating your need for christian encouragement by like a thousand percent what if you're not like like, you know vitamin d deficiency you know you go to the doctor you're tired you know you can't but you can't sleep and gaining tons of weight and so on and you go to the doctor and they say oh you're deficient in vitamin d you're like oh well how deficient like we're surprised you're alive (laughs) you're a medical miracle (laughs) Is it, is it possible that because of the individualizing stories that our culture tells us, and even like the architecture and the way our culture is built, is it possible that we are just this radically underestimating our need for frequent encouragement by those who are good, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith? 
And, and I think that is possible. I think it's true. And I think the only solution to that really, I, I, I want to call us like I did last week to say, absolutely, we have got to be better at encouraging one another and so on. But friends, I, I, think, I think the truth is, is that this is sort of one of those, you've got to go out and seek this. You've got to ask people to help you. You've got to explicitly ask people to encourage you. You've got to ask people to explicitly warn you. You've got to ask people to explicitly check your heart and so on and so forth. Here's the thing about a friend. They're polite. And that's not wrong. You know, friends don't just bust in uninvited. Friends don't, you know, friends don't just plaster stuff. No. Friends are polite. And friends believe that you are a person of dignity and worth and that and that like you you have boundaries and some of them are good and some of them are bad but it's not my job to just kick all those down and so really the 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 real clear call to how this perseverance and friendship thing works it has to be us as individuals saying i can't do it all i can't focus like i need to focus I better get serious about this one place of disproportionate uh, consequence. I better, I better figure out the 80-20 prop on this. Where can I get uh, 80% of the, the, the value or the effect out of 20% of the effort? Because I've got about 20% of effort in me, and that 20% would certainly be pursuing one another, pursuing Christian friendship. The Bible actually tells us that when people do fall away, it's it's rooted in or related to them rejecting these basic means of grace. In 2 Timothy 4, 2-3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And the Bible also tells us that, the, that, that Satan will send false friends to us in an attempt to lure us away. In 2 Timothy 3, 1, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And one last proof text for you. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, where Paul simply reminds us something simple that we are slow to believe. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Good friends teach what is good. Good friends warn. Good friends even wound. And good friends remind us that it is possible to grow ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And good friends recognize when we are beginning to look like we are unfruitful. And good friends will, if we invite them, say, hey, how can I encourage you to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast to him? How can I encourage you to do this? Well, next week we'll look a little bit more at this 
presumption. I shouldn't have told you that, because it's like the one thing you probably want to avoid. But we're going to talk about presumption again next week. But we're going to introduce the Lord's table right now. And I want you to notice something. As I read from Luke, and I could have read from any of the Gospel accounts, I want you to notice that first of all, of course, the Lord's table is what for the believer? It is this marker of His incredible faithfulness to come time and time again, forgiving us of our sins. It's a marker of what He has paid and what we were bought with, the blood of Jesus. But even in this story, no matter where you turn, anytime you want to talk about the Lord's table, you will always be forced to deal with this three kinds of person uh, reality. What's very interesting, let me just read the text and you'll hear it. This is from Luke. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's incredibly assuring. Verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Even in this story that is meant to give the Christian deep assurance, there is this Subtle reminder that we are seeking perseverance without presumption. We are seeking perseverance without presumption. The Lord is ours. He has given Himself to us. Let us at this time, as we take the bread and take the cup, remain steadfast to Him. Regain our focus on Him. Set our hearts fully on Him. Because if we set our hearts fully on Him, we will not be ashamed. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we ask.